Hi. Um, so we are so excited to have Dr. Rubio here today um, from UCSF. And we have some questions. We have both the podcast club here and uh, members of the newspaper. And so um, they are going to ask Dr. Rubio some questions that we've compiled from students and teachers and staff across ICA Crystal Ray. So I will um, give it over to the students. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. So the first question I have is, is it possible to receive COVID even with the mask on? So it is still possible. Nothing is, you know, 0% in terms of transmission, but you know, it, it all depends on the situation of, you know, when you're in contact with somebody who may have um, COVID-19, you know, as we say, you know, if, you know, two people are unmasked and one of them has COVID-19, you know, that's a fairly, you know, high risk scenario for the other person to get COVID-19. Now, if you kind of go down the route of, well, if the other person who doesn't have COVID have a mask on, you know, the risk is not as high, but it moves a little bit lower for that person to be able to get COVID-19. And it depends on the mask that you're wearing too. So as you all are familiar with, we've kind of evolved with the masks that we've been using. You know, initially it was, you know, any mask is okay. Um, you know, cloth is like probably the one that doesn't provide the most protection given that, you know, particles can still get through a cloth mask. Um, the next mask is a surgical mask, which may be a little bit more tightly woven. So filters out more particles. And then you have your highest grade uh, masks, which are like the N95 or the KN95 that you may see around and that filters up even more. The 95, meaning that it filters out, you know, about 95% of things coming through. So, you know, none of them are 100%. So things can still get through the mask. Um, but if, you know, we take it down to the next level where if somebody wears a mask who has COVID and another, the other person who doesn't have COVID wears a mask, then the risk is lower because, you know, the person who has it, you know, they will have a barrier from their nose and mouth to be breathing it out. And then the other person who is masked will, you know, be further protected with the mask that they have on. So kind of lowering the amount of virus that is able to get from one person to another. So still possible, but much lower risk in the in using masks, which is why we, you know, eventually got to the point in saying that, you know, we should all wear masks, um, you know, especially in indoor settings, um, you know, such as restaurants, meetings. Um, and then, um, you know, even in some cases when transmission has been so high, even to wear it outside or in crowded places outside. So um, that's in summary, in summary, you know, it's still possible, and, but we would still recommend using the mask because it lowers the chances much more. And of course, we may get into this a little bit later, you know, vaccination also helps the protecting you from COVID with the mask as well. The next question I have is, when is someone who has COVID the most contagious? And yeah, that is a very de highly debated topic. So we can talk about it in terms of, you know, what happens when somebody first gets COVID, right? Say if um, I were exposed to somebody who had COVID, um, you know, usually the amount of time that a virus takes to replicate in somebody is what we call the incubation period. And you know, our best estimate of that incubation period for COVID-19 is about you know, a couple days or so, 
for then to for then you to have you know symptoms and then be contagious to other people but what is also important is that even before you develop symptoms you have probably gotten to the point where there's enough virus replicating that you can transmit it to other people so that's why when you know when we ask patients you know who develop symptoms of covid-19 we ask them in the past, you know, 48 or 72 hours, um, you know, notify any anybody that you've been in contact with because that's probably when they were uh, contagious to them during that time. So I would say in summary, probably the most contagious you are um, when you have, or most contagious is, you know, when you have symptoms, um, but also a couple days before that. And it's also important to know that some people don't even have symptoms. You know, they may get tested because they had contact with somebody with COVID-19 or, you know, they needed for a procedure or what have you, and they'll be positive without any symptoms. And even those people who are asymptomatic can still be infectious to others. So I usually use symptoms as kind of a guide of, you know, how contagious somebody could be to others, but. Um, which is why it's important when somebody does develop symptoms to, you know, test quickly, you know, using a rapid test if possible, so that you can know right away. And, and also, you know, because that will help you decide if you should notify people, you know, that you had contact with the first two days or the two days prior, um, but also get your, getting yourself into isolation. And the next one I have is, can you explain the new changes from five days to from seven days? Yeah, absolutely. So again, another very highly debated uh, topic. So overall, the, the reason for the change from 10 days previously to five days is because after, you know, the CDC reviewing a lot of data and information of when people are contagious or how long people are contagious. Um, they saw that, you know, by day five, most people are no longer contagious to others. There is some debate about that, which is why here in California, you know, we still recommend getting another test after day five to make sure that you're now negative and not contagious to others. That kind of extra negative test kind of reassures people that, you know, you're not gonna be contagious to other people. Um, but, you know, previously in the pandemic, it had been 10 days, um, you know, mostly out of precaution. Um, you know, we had suspected that, you know, the amount of time that a virus is in your system is about 14 days or so. Um, and if we do the math, you know, it takes about three to four days to develop symptoms. So that's kind of like when your symptoms start. And then you isolate for 10 days in total, that's about like 14 days total of how long the virus has been in your, in your system. So um, initially it was 10, but then the CDC reviewed information. And now, you know, with the data they have, they think that, you know, five days is probably sufficient for the majority of people um, that's still being debated right now. But overall, they think that less isolation is um, safer now. Um, we're also in a different period of the pandemic, you know, early on when, you know, the majority of people hadn't had COVID, were not vaccinated. I think it probably was important to extend the isolation a little bit longer because you want to contain um, the spread of COVID-19 in the population. 
Now it may be a little bit different because now, you know, fortunately with the vaccine, um, you know, a majority of us are now vaccinated and protect some protection against COVID-19 uh, in that way and using masks as well. So um, again, the main reason is that new information showing that possibly after five days from having symptoms, you're no longer contagious to others. What I tell my patients is, you know, I still like them to do that second test. Um, especially if it's somebody who's working in a high risk setting, such as, you know, if they're working in a school or, um, you know, a daycare or taking care of patients or taking care of others who are vulnerable, I think that it's probably wise to get that second test to make sure they're negative before going back. Uh, uh, one question that I have is, is someone with symptoms more contagious than someone without symptoms? And how can I tell if I'm asymptomatic? Yeah, I think in general, people who are having symptoms, the way I like to think of them is that they're probably having a lot more of the virus replicating and causing those symptoms. You know, COVID-19 tends to replicate more you know, in the nose and the throat and in the lungs. So if you're having a lot of replication there, then there's going to be a lot of, you know, inflammation um, causing you to have those symptoms, right? Our symptoms are more from our body responding to the virus. So you're going to have, you know, coughing, shortness of breath, congestion. There are other symptoms you can have too, like fever and such. So I would say, generally speaking, not, you know, entirely, you know, um, true, asymptomatic people can still be as contagious as symptomatic people, but I would say if you're having symptoms, then you're likely to be very um, contagious to, to others, which is why it's important to isolate. Um, and then how can you tell if you have infections, uh, if you have an infection when you're asymptomatic? So that's a, that's a really tough question because, you know, if you're not having symptoms, then, you know, you, you don't really have a reason to to suspect that you have COVID-19. I would say if you don't have symptoms, reasons to test are, you know, as I mentioned before, is that if you were a contact of somebody with COVID-19 recently, um, would definitely try to get tested, you know, for example, over the holidays, you know, if people were getting, had like a lot of get togethers or traveled, um, you know, I think there are moments that, um, or maybe just to backtrack, I'll use an example of myself. Um, you know, I did travel back home um, for the holidays. So before I left, even though I didn't have symptoms, I wanted to be sure that I didn't have COVID. So I took a test, I took a rapid test to make sure that I was negative. You know, I did sort of get togethers at home. So when I flew back, I took another test. And then when I got back to work, I took another test as well. So I think, you know, it, it's all about, um, you know, if you're having a get together with other people, if you're traveling, if you take care of other people at home, or if you have family members at home who are, um, you know, vulnerable to COVID-19 and you don't have symptoms, I think getting a regular test, you know, would be uh, reasonable to make sure that you don't have it and are asymptomatic and are passing it to other people. Or if you were, you know, again, a recent contact, making sure that you test after that contact to make sure that you did not get, um, COVID-19. And another question is, what are other symptoms that can come from having COVID? 
And can you be more susceptible to things such as diabetes, cancer, or mental health disorders? Um, yeah, so I think other symptoms of COVID, so we talked about mostly the respiratory ones, given that, you know, COVID-19 is mostly a um, respiratory sort of viral illness. Um, we talked about fevers, um, you know, fatigue, just feeling tired, not feeling quite yourself, myalgia, so a lot of like muscle aches and pains. Again, that's kind of a inflammatory response that your body makes, making you feel, you know, overall crummy. Um, and then other symptoms, I mean, in terms of like other conditions, um, you know, having COVID-19 itself doesn't necessarily mean you will be more likely to develop um, those conditions that you mentioned, the diabetes, uh, cancer, other things. But I think we're also very early on in the pandemic. I know it seems like it's been forever, but, you know, we've only learned, about, we only have about two years of information of COVID-19. Um, you know, we started this about, you know, or maybe even a little less than two years ago for here in the United States. So this is going to take time to learn a little bit. I will say that a lot of people did realize they had other medical conditions at the time they were diagnosed with COVID-19. And that is a very kind of complicated uh, question to answer because I think um, a lot of uh, people who are negatively impacted by uh, COVID-19 or disproportionately impacted, I should say, you know, were people you know, of color, so people who were, you know, African-American, Latinx, um, Southeast Asian, um, who may have, you know, COVID-19 experienced barriers to care to, to see a regular doctor for regular checkups. So really the first time they go to the hospital when they develop COVID-19 is the first time they see a doctor in the first place. And then, you know, boom, right there, they find out that they have diabetes that, you know, that they are, you know, overweight and causing them to have a really bad illness of COVID-19. And, you know, I've even had some cases where, you know, patients with coming in with COVID-19 and they had, you know, shortness of breath for a long period of time. And they finally saw a doctor and they found out that they did have, you know, lung cancer. So I think it's a lot of people who, um, you know, probably didn't have a lot of access to healthcare. And it was really in a time of crisis when they had COVID-19 that they saw someone and then they found out that they had other conditions. So that's kind of like an association, not because of COVID-19, but probably because of other structural barriers and structural racism that exists, you know, unfortunately in our society that didn't allow these people to get into care sooner. So um, it was probably a lot more than what you all wanted to hear, but um, it is kind of a very important topic that I, we need to continue to address after the pandemic and then in terms of are you going to be at risk of other conditions in the future I think it remains to be seen you know there is long COVID that we're still continuously learning about I think we're we are seeing that in people who experience symptoms of long COVID you know it does seem that they do have some neurocognitive effects afterwards you know kind of just trouble with concentration and memory which we're still actively learning about People who had really, you know, severe COVID from a lung perspective may have some residual lung scarring and issues afterwards as well. Um, some people who have needed lung transplants afterwards. So I think we're still in that early phase of, 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 of seeing what, what it means to have COVID-19, you know, in the long term. If someone who takes pills such as antidepressants, are they at a greater risk if they do come in contact with COVID? That's a great question. So overall, 
if somebody is on medications like antidepressants, I would say that they are not at higher risk of developing, um, you know, COVID-19 or severe COVID-19. Um, there was an interesting study that there was one specific um, antidepressant called fluvoxamine um, that actually showed that people actually did better who took this medicine at the time that they got COVID-19, which is really interesting. You know, there's some interesting studies that show that this, you know, cheap medicine may actually help with COVID-19. It's still not fully recommended at this point. I, you know, even though uh, as, you know, as you all know with, you know, the, the medical care system it, and, you know, with um, advancement, um, you wanna see repeated success of a treatment before recommending it to, to everyone. So I think we're still waiting to see that for this medicine. Um, but I would say that there's no increased risk if somebody's on antidepressants and who knows, even if, if you are on fluvoxamine may actually be in a better spot to, to prevent severe disease. How many times can you get COVID and how will it affect your health and immunity after COVID? Yeah, great question. So in terms of reactions, um, you know, usually what I like to say for folks is that after they get COVID-19, you know, immunity from an infection itself lasts about three months, um, which is why some of you may have heard that, you know, after you get COVID-19, that you don't have to retest for COVID-19 um, again in, in a three-month period because, you know, you are probably, you know, highly protected from the recent infection that you had. So that's kind of uh, natural immunity. Um, and really in terms of how many times you can get it, you know, I, I've definitely seen folks get it, you know, again, once, um, and it really depends on how much the virus changes. Um, and because if the virus keeps changing, then maybe your immunity that you had before won't be as protective, um, you know, such as with Omicron, you know, the, the spike protein on Omicron changed significantly to the point that our antibodies made from natural infection and even from vaccines, um, you know, it was able to evade that and still cause COVID-19. So it really depends on, you know, how long your immunity lasts. I would say it lasts about, you know, three months or so after a natural infection. For vaccines, I think we are kind of thinking that it lasts a little bit longer, probably six months based on, you know, when Delta came around, people were kind of getting close to the five month, six month mark and had lower antibody levels. And that's why they were able to, you know, be susceptible to Delta. Um, and then one of the reasons why we recommended a booster at, you know, six months after your second dose to, to protect you from, you know, other variants like Omicron and even the future ones or even more future ones. And in terms of long-term impact on your immunity, um, I would say that, you know, it's hard, again, we're early on, so it's hard to know what it will mean in the future. Um, there is a little bit of concern of people saying that your own system may get fatigued um, over time, um, but I don't think that there's enough information to, to tell us one way or another. So I would say that it's still, as long as we're still in this pandemic and there's still new variants coming around, it will still be important to follow, you know, good, um, masking, good public health measures, like, you know, maintaining six feet from people, avoiding crowded 
um, scenarios, especially if there's like a lot of community transmission. Um, and then, you know, staying up to date with the vaccines that are available right now and the guidance that's in place right now, um, that would be the best way to protect yourself from, you know, future strains and variants. Um, I know we already talked about masks, but as a follow-up question, when should we replace disposable masks? Great question. So I would say um, if they're visibly soiled, like say if you're like wearing it and it's like wet and got stained or dirty, I would say that's a scenario to like replace it right away. I would say the best practice would be to try to use a daily one um, because if you kind of use it throughout the day, you're pretty much like, um, it retains all the sort of um, particles that you've been kind of breathing from the outside world and from the inside. So I'd say pretty, it come, becomes pretty saturated by the end of the day or so. So I would say that that would probably be the most ideal amount of time to exchange a mask. Should we, or is there going to be a booster shot every year, just like the flu shot or not? Yeah, another question that, you know, we don't know the answer to right now. There is a lot of development of a Omicron specific uh, vaccine at this point, which I think both Pfizer and Moderna are working on. I would say it's, it is likely at this point that they may happen. So it, it all depends on what COVID-19 does in the next coming months, you know, the reason why there's always a flu vaccine every year is because influenza, um, which is the virus that causes the flu, is a very um, erratic um, virus that kind of changes a lot because it's not very good at replicating itself. It kind of messes up a lot when it replicates, it kind of like makes new forms. You also have to deal with, you know, there are these two concepts with our autogenic drift and antigenic um, shift. Drift is more of like your kind of changes over time, replicating kind of makes mutations. You get a different strain every once in a while, um, usually every year or so. And then you have antigenic shift, which is when influenza, you know, mixes with an influenza from a different kind of population, be it, you know, birds or swine. Um, and then you get kind of like a whole new different influenza virus. So, um, you know, influenza changes very frequently, very rapidly, um, which is why we still get a yearly flu shot. I would say that, you know, previously, this is pre-COVID-19, um, coronaviruses, tended to be very good at replicating and not mutate a lot. So, um, you know, there were, there was like SARS-CoV-1 in the early 2000s and there was MERS, which is another one in the um, 2000s that never reached the pandemic level of COVID-19. So I think now with COVID-19, you're getting, again, a lot of replication of COVID-19 and it is slowly evolving as we've seen about every, um, well, early on, it was doing it fairly quickly, um, but now we're seeing that it's happening, you know, every three or four months or so, there seems to be kind of a new strain. So again, it depends on what COVID-19 does. Um, if it keeps changing, um, that may sort of cause it to be more immune evasive or resistant to our vaccines, then we probably will need, week, uh, not weekly, sorry, yearly vaccines. Um, 
um, depending on that strain. If, if that's if it follows the pattern like flu that I described earlier, then we'll likely need to be um, sort of updating our vaccine on a on a yearly basis. Um, but it's still, um, I think, the most important thing to prevent. COVID-19 to continue to change is, you know, we really need to work on vaccinating the world because we're seeing that, you know, these variants come out of populations that are not um, highly vaccinated, either due to it not being available um, or just not having access to those vaccines. So I think we need to do a good job of vaccinating the world that way that the virus has less chance to evolve and replicate and change itself and prevent sort of future needs for vaccine and vaccine boosters. Um, in the beginning of this whole pandemic around March or so, a lot of people dealt with anxiety and they were scared. So many stores were out of stock with toilet paper, how do we prevent or avoid issues like that in the future? Yeah, I think that probably led to like a very, you know, it was a very big surprise. So I think it caught off a lot of guard and we didn't really know how to live with COVID-19 at that point. There was, as you mentioned, we didn't have a lot of knowledge of, you know, what COVID-19 was. The, you know, we did know that it caused a pretty bad you know, respiratory illness and failure, um, but, you know, we didn't know how contagious it was, um, how it was transmitted, um, you know, et cetera. So I think we really didn't know how to live with the virus. I think we are getting closer to a point of knowing how to live with it. Unfortunately, you know, by we've been kind of forced to learn how to live with it. But now we know that, um, you know, one, um, we have an available vaccine. So I think that is definitely something that we should keep promoting, um, you know, to, to everyone um, as, as best as we can, because that is going to be what best protects our population for sort of big um, outages and, you know, and outbreaks that lead to disruption of, you know, supply and uh, of, you know, of very, um, fundamental things to our day-to-day -day lives. So I think promoting the vaccine um, and then, you know, beyond the vaccine, you know, promoting, you know, sort of preventative measures such as the masking, you know, hand hygiene, um, distancing. Um, I know there's like an obsession with, you know, cleaning all surfaces and areas, you know, cause there was a worry that it was transmitted from, you know, droplets and from contact. So you know, it doesn't seem that that's the main driver of COVID-19 transmission. It's mainly airborne, um, you know, and floating particles in the air, making it important to wear masks, um, you know, in indoor settings. Um, and then I think the other things too is, you know, we are experiencing a, a high stress in the healthcare system right now with a highly contagious, you know, Omicron variant that was, you know, resistant to our vaccine. So, um, Again, I think in moments that there are these outbreaks, it's kind of scaling back a little of, um, you know, the amount of activity that we that we do. I, this all happened over um, the holidays, so this kind of just exponent led to like an exponential growth of it. So I think we do need to have good public health policies in moments of outbreaks to kind of slow down the spread. Even though that we have good treatments for COVID nineteen right now, you know, it's still a 
deadly disease despite these treatments. And it also can overwhelm the healthcare system. And you know, when there's overwhelmed hospitals, when there's reduced staff, um, because of like COVID-19, you know, that leaves people, you know, at risk in the hospital uh, of higher kind of mortality. So I think it's uh, it's really important to follow public health guidance um, in terms of, you know, how, you know, if we need to scale back on like indoor dining or, you know, the sites of events that we can have, um, you know, I think it's important to be flexible with that to prevent huge outbreaks and prevent a lot of transmission to um, the population that could lead to overwhelming the healthcare system and other um, kind of vital things to daily living, as you mentioned. Hi, um, I have a question. So um, coming from someone who lives in like a big household, uh, uh, if someone were to test positive and like, how would you like suggest them isolating? But like they live in like a small apartment and like, you know, they can't really have an, like a spare room to like isolate themselves. Like what are your advice on that? No, yeah, very, very important question. And and yeah, it, it is tough, especially in a place like San Francisco where all of our, um, and even in the Bay Area, kind of all of our houses are small and, you know, need to have roommates in order to live in San Francisco. So um, it, it is tough. I would say that um, the, a very important thing is that when somebody has symptoms is to have rapid tests available at home. I mean, those are difficult to obtain, you know, there's definitely now, you know, a federal, you know, government program now where people can get rapid tests delivered to their households. However, you know, if you only get four tests and, you know, as you mentioned, there's big households and four tests is, it may not be the appropriate amount for certain households. So um, not able to get a rapid test is, you know, still getting tested as soon as possible to first find out because the first step is, you know, finding out, do you have COVID-19 or not? Um, so, you know, when you do find out if the result is positive, then, you know, trying your best within the household of finding one room that you can stay in. Um, and then even then, um, you know, if other family members are symptomatic and you're waiting on tests, then, you know, that can be a way of kind of splitting up the household of, you know, getting people together who are like had an exposure or are having symptoms while they're waiting for their test to kind of separate them from the rest of the household. Um, there's obviously, you know, the bathroom situation, you know, a lot of shared bathrooms across the city. So I think it's still okay to share bathrooms. Um, but if somebody who is suspected to have COVID or does have COVID, it's important to have kind of clean down the bathroom each time that they use it, you know, with the high touch surfaces, um, just to kind of lessen the risk of, you know, transmission there, even though I mentioned that, you know, we're not, we don't have to be as worried with kind of picking up COVID from surfaces. Um, and then also um, within that household, other measures that people can do is ventilation. So ventilation is very important for kind of getting out airborne particles um, that have COVID-19 kind of outside of your house and into the environment. So um, opening the windows across the house can be helpful too, to kind of increase that ventilation. Um, 
people have filters at home, which they can also use if they would like. They may not be kind of, you know, the hospital standard filters, but, you know, if you if it, it's available, you know, it's better than nothing. And then also mask use inside the house as well. Usually, um, you know, or at least I suspect that for the majority of people who are at home with family and friends or roommates, you know, they don't typically use masks within um, indoors. But if there is a scenario where somebody has COVID or suspected of having COVID, I think that's a good time to put on the masks uh, until you find out more information. Or if it's confirmed to be COVID-19, you know, if that person has to leave their isolation room to wear a mask indoors to, you know, if they have to go to the bathroom or grab something from the kitchen. Um, and then, mentioning kitchen, then also like kind of not eating in the same place as well. Um, probably trying to separate all of, this, all of those activities as, as best as you can. Um, and then going back to sort of when you're done with isolation, which is, you know, five, which what we're saying now is five days after you develop symptoms or have a positive test, then, you know, repeating the test to make sure that you're negative so that you can, you know, come out of your household sooner. However, it's still important to continue wearing the mask because even though we didn't mention it earlier, part of the CDC guidance of shortening it from 10 to five days is that people will, after five days, you know, when they leave isolation is continuing to wear the mask around the house and in public too. So mask wearing will be another thing as well. So, and then in households, I, this is a very kind of specific scenario that I've encountered with patients is, you know, well, what happens if everybody in the house has, ends up having COVID then, you know, what do we do in that scenario? Do we need to keep isolating from each other? You know, if everybody is confirmed to have, you know, COVID-19, then, you know, the most important thing is to isolate kind of your house from kind of the, uh, outside world, you know, within the house. Now, if everybody were to have COVID, then you don't have to be as strict of, you know, being in separate rooms all the time. You all will have COVID and, you know, you can't like pass along COVID to somebody else who already has COVID. So you can kind of loosen it in a way, in in some ways, um, if everybody does have COVID, but definitely not a scenario that I, I hope that happens to, to people. I think the, the goal is still trying to minimize the spread as best as possible. Um, coming from like an, an ethnic family for um, a lot of the times when someone is sick, we use natural at home remedies. Do you recommend that for people who have COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I, I grew up in a house, you know, where we always use, you know, Vaporub in, in our chest to make us breathe a little bit better and other home remedies like manzanilla and things like that. Uh, and my practice, you know, not just with COVID-19, but with other illnesses, um, I say that if it's not causing any harm, um, then definitely go ahead and do it. Um, you know, I, I do try to kind of say to patients that, you know, it's not going to hurt, but it also may not help entirely. And it's still important to seek care if you're getting worse. Um, for example, you know, if you are start developing shortness of breath where you like can't catch your breath or you're developing really bad chest pain, if your fevers are not getting better, even with using Tylenol or other remedies, you know, still have those um, kind of um, level or that kind of um, you know, urgency to go seek care if your symptoms are not getting better and not rely on, 
on the remedies to, to get better. It's also important to chat with, you know, if you have access to, you know, a primary care physician, um, because there are now some treatments that we can give uh, patients with COVID, you know, outside of the hospital. A lot of the treatments were kind of restricted to the hospital, um, but now we do have some antiviral pills that can help that were recently authorized by the, the FDA, but usually getting access to the, that medicine involves chatting with your doctor, making sure it's the right medicine for you or the right decision, and then prescribing it to, to somewhere. So I would say, you know, I think I have no problem with people using home remedies to, to make them feel better, but just remember that if you're not getting better and you need more attention to call your doctor for more information. Um, I have just one last question. Uh, a lot of people don't have access to tests for COVID, like in a lot of places at home tests are sold out or they don't know any information about where to get tested. Uh, what do you recommend when you're in that situation? Absolutely. Well, it, it all depends on, you know, where you're at, maybe just speaking to you know, San Francisco um, itself, you know, there, there are several um, community testing centers that do have COVID tests, you know, just down the street from, from you all, there is the testing site at 24th and CAP. Um, obviously they have, you know, they're not there every day of the week. They're mostly there, if I remember, um, from, you know, Thursdays and through, through the weekend. So that's a big, that's a good place to go to, to get rapid tests where you get same day, um, results. Um, also looking online, which again means that you have to have online access, so not very accessible, um, is looking up through, you know, California uh, Department of Public Health or San Francisco Department of Public Health to look for a list of, you know, places that offer free COVID-19 testing. Um, that's kind of like the best that I can do. And also kind of in discussion with your doctor, if they can order a, a test for you um, to their, you know, healthcare system to, to get tested sooner. So um, those are the, the main things that I mentioned to people. Um, usually, you know, look up with them and find a place and see what works best for them in terms of hours. And, you know, if it's, you know, close to where they live, um, that's what I typically do with patients, but it's all, it all should be available online um, looking, you know, through the Department of Public Health. All right. Um, did anyone have any like last minute questions or? Awesome. Uh, I just I just wanted to say thank you to Dr. Rubio for coming in and you know uh, teaching us about this stuff. I think that's super important. And yeah, thank you for uh, giving your time with us and sharing with uh, yeah cool you know information. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, yeah. a lot of people don't have this information or don't have access to this information. So I think it's great that you're able to be here with us and share this with us. Absolutely. I mean, thank you all for, for having me. I know it's after school for you all. So I appreciate you all staying a, an hour after school to, to chat with me. And I'm always happy to help. And as you say, it's important to disseminate this information for people who need it. Thank you.